Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, and this week we actually reached the end of Matthew chapter 5. You might have begun to wonder whether or not chapter 5 had an ending, but we are ending chapter 5, so we're about a third of the way, in case you're new with us, through our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And just to remind you where we've been so far, Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount the characteristics, the lifestyle of those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we have just concluded this morning a section uh, where we're looking at six examples he's giving us here of uh, where Jesus is contrasting his own understanding of the law, the true meaning and intent of the law, and the distortions that are being taught by the religious leaders of the day. That's what he's been doing here in verses 21, if you'll notice, through verse 48. But he's also, in this final example as well, giving us here the kind of radical, internal, heart-oriented righteousness that is necessary if you're going to follow him and enter his kingdom. In fact, if you just look back for a moment in verse 20 of chapter 5, this is really sort of the, the heading Um, the thesis of this section that we've been looking at, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is what is necessary. Unless you have this, this internal, qualitatively different righteousness, this, this righteousness that goes beyond the external, unless you have that flowing from Inside the heart transformed by grace, you're not going to enter my kingdom. And so that's where we've been, and we're going to come to the sixth and final example here this morning. So let me pray, and we'll launch in. Father, we pray now that as we come to your word, would you speak to us? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? The same God who said, let light shine in darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So would you show us Christ today? Help us to fix our eyes on him. And now speak through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The author C.S. Lewis, he was once criticized for an article, in an article, about not caring very much about the Sermon on the Mount. It was a critique on him that he didn't care about the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't really like the Sermon on the Mount. And Lewis, he responded to that article with his own article in a way that only Lewis could. And he said this, quote, As for caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine... 
a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read this passage with tranquil humility or pleasure. And maybe that's you this morning. You, you've, you've felt this way as we've been in this study of the Sermon on the Mount. You've felt like you've been hit by a sledgehammer, which isn't exactly enjoyable. Whether it's those eight humiliating blows we saw in the Beatitudes or these six exposing examples here, it feels like you've been hit with a sledgehammer. And so if that's you this morning, I want to just remind you of some of the things, some of the great realities about the Sermon on the Mount before we read our passage here this morning, because it doesn't get any easier today either. So a couple of great realities I just want to remind you of. Number one, reality number one, the Sermon on the Mount is describing life inside the kingdom. It's a description of life inside the kingdom. In other words, this is a description of citizens living in God's kingdom, who are already in the kingdom. So this isn't a sermon about what you must do to earn that citizenship. No, this is a sermon about how we must live having entered that kingdom already through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't forget the order. If you remember back in verses 3 to 12, these beatitudes here, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. So Christian, this is who you already are. You're already a citizen of his kingdom by God's grace. When he saved you, when he brought you to, to faith, when he transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. So this isn't a standard you have to reach to enter in. This is a standard that describes those who are already in. Which means living by this standard here in the Sermon on the Mount is an impossible. It is impossible to live this out. That's why Jesus commands it here, because it's possible for you to do by His grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. Which leads us to the second reality. The Sermon on the Mount is possible to live out because Jesus died to purchase this life for you. He died, His death on the cross purchased your ability to live this out. That Christ, by the death and resurrection, hasn't only secured saving grace for you, he's secured sanctifying grace for you as well, enabling you, empowering you to live this out. And Jesus died to purchase that for you. That is the promise of the new covenant. The new covenant, the new covenant in the blood of Christ purchased for you. In fact, Notice this promise in Ezekiel 36, verse 27. God's promise in the new covenant. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The new covenant bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus causes you by his spirit in you to live this out. So, you need to remember these great realities as we come to our passage here today because, again, it might feel like getting hit with a sledgehammer. Let's see it together. Matthew chapter 5. If you have your place there, would you please stand with me out of honor for the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 43. 
The Apostle Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the words of Jesus, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. So as we come now to this sixth and final example here, we find the most concentrated, most centralized expression of Christian ethics as we do anywhere in the Bible. Where Jesus... He notice here in verse 44, calls us to love our enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Beloved, this is the very heart of Christian ethics. This is the very heart of the ethics of the kingdom of Christ. We are called to love our enemies. And that is a high standard. Here we see the radical demands Jesus is making that is in stark contrast to the world around us. Loving our enemies. And we're reminded here, notice, of just how countercultural this is. In fact, because the questions, notice, Jesus will ask... In verses 46 and 47, show us that this isn't even something that's possible for the natural man. Verse 46, do not even the tax collectors do the same. They love those who love them. They don't love their enemies. Verse 47, do not even the Gentiles do the same. So this is a high standard, seemingly impossible, So I thought this morning as we began, it might be helpful to first just begin here by sort of taking what we might call an enemy inventory. An enemy inventory. Who are your enemies? Not in a generic sense, but in a real, practical, personal sense. Because I think this passage is going to do you no good if we simply think in the abstract. Who are your enemies? And how can we apply this to our lives today? Who who is an enemy to you? Now, sadly, some of you here, there's an immediate name, there's an immediate face that pops into your mind. You, You know who your enemies are. Others of us, though, however, it may take a little more thinking. It may take us just a little longer to decide, okay, who who is my enemy? Who's an enemy to me? Who are they? Well, We're going to dig into that here in just a moment, but notice there, if you would, in just verse 44, we have a bit of a description here given by Jesus as to who an enemy is. Look what he says in verse 44, love your enemies 
And then notice this parallel command, and pray for those who persecute you. So who then are my enemies? Well, an enemy, Jesus says, is anyone who persecutes you. Now, you can remember back to that eighth beatitude, if you remember back in verse 11, where Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And we saw there, if you remember, that persecution isn't limited to just extreme forms, right? You remember that? No, in fact, persecution is everything from being harmed to being harassed, from being slaughtered to being slandered for the sake of Christ, for the righteousness sake, Jesus says. So this, this idea of an enemy, then, is anyone who opposes you, anyone who maligns you, anyone who mistreats you for the gospel of Christ, for your faith in Christ, for the ethics of the kingdom. So those who would harm you, that's an enemy, Jesus says. But our enemies are seen in less dramatic ways as well. Even less dramatic ways. Look there, verse 45. He, God, makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust or the unrighteous. In other words, an enemy is anyone who's unrighteous, evil. Who are the evil and the unrighteous? Well, this would be anyone who defies the laws of God who resists the will of God, who rejects the things of God, who doesn't submit to the authority of God. In other words, these are all unbelievers as well. The unrighteous. So in one sense, every unbeliever could be considered an enemy. Why? Well, because they're an enemy of God. They're an enemy of His kingdom. They're an enemy of the cross. And thus your enemies. As well, I'm not sure if you've thought about unbelievers like that before, an enemy. But then one more, look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you. (laughs) Here an enemy is simply anyone who doesn't love you. Doesn't have your good in mind. Doesn't have your best in mind. That's an enemy. Verse 47, an enemy is anyone who isn't your brother. I think you're getting even maybe a clearer picture of who your enemies are. So the idea seems to be this is anyone who seeks to harm you, hurt you, malign you, dishonor you, is against you, threatening you. That's an enemy. So whether you have a face in mind, friend, or perhaps as you're looking forward, maybe even to a time where persecution will become more prevalent and your enemies will become more clear. I think it's good for us this morning to ask ourselves, okay, what does this passage teach me about how to love my enemies? Three main headings I want you to see. Three headings. Let me give them to you. Number one, a perversion of the law of love. Verse 43, and we're going to see how the scribes and Pharisees had perverted God's law to love their enemies, a perversion. Second, the perfection of the law of love. You see that in verse 44. And there we're going to see what Jesus commands about loving our enemies. What does it look like to love our enemies? 
And then third and finally, the reasons to fulfill the law of love. The reasons or the motivations, verses 45 to 48. What is it that will motivate you and encourage you to love your enemies? So there we go. That's the outline. First, a perversion of the law of love. Look there, verse 43. Jesus, notice here, he, for the sixth and final time, states how the religious leaders of his day had again perverted this law, the law of God. So here's the common teaching of the day. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, so here's what you have been taught, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now up to this point, in these six examples here, we have seen the distortions, we've seen the the misinterpretations, we've seen even just the, the mere external understanding of the law by the scribes and the Pharisees, haven't we? But now, the teaching here, this distortion, this mishandling becomes blatantly obvious. I mean, it is absolutely clear how they have distorted it. What did the law actually teach? Well, this is a quote, notice in verse 43, from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Notice here, Leviticus 19, verse 18 states this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. We saw that last week, remember? But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the Pharisees were teaching you should love your neighbor. That sounds right. That's good, right? Love your neighbor. That's what the law taught. You should love your neighbor. But they were also teaching that you could hate your enemy. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So now the perversion is blatantly obvious, isn't it? Because they had omitted something, they had restricted something, and they had added something. Let me say that again. They had omitted something, they had restricted something, and they had added something. What? What had they done? What had they omitted? What had they restricted? And what had they added? Well, notice first they had omitted something. What did they omit? Well, look again, Leviticus 19, verse 18. It'll be up on the screen for you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, they had omitted that part. They left that out. And so, here's what they've done. They've subtly twisted, then, this command here about how you are to love as yourself into a command about whom you were to love. Your neighbor. That wasn't all. They had also restricted something. A restriction. They had narrowly restricted this command to only their neighbors. Look there at verse 43. You shall love your neighbor. Well, that seems right, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that what the law says? Love your neighbor? But the problem is that they had restricted neighbor to refer only to fellow Jews. Only to fellow Jews. So again, Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor. Okay, so 
Here's their understanding. That must mean then that my neighbors are the sons of my own people. My, my fellow Jews. And so then they reasoned that this law is only commanding me to love my neighbor. My fellow Jews. My people. Same ethnic group as me. So they had restricted the definition of neighbor. So they'd omitted it, they'd restricted it, but they'd added to it. Look at this. They'd added something. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the law never said that. The law never said that. So how did they get that? Oh, this is slick. And it seems rather logical. If you were to love only your neighbor, then you must hate your enemy. Right? Scholar Charles Quarles writes this. He says, quote, Evidently, some of Jesus' contemporaries argued that the command to focus one's love specifically on his neighbor also imply the inverse, that is, one was to hate all who were not his neighbor. So if I'm only to love my neighbor, then that means I hate everybody else. I hate my enemies. So do you see how they had twisted it? Do you see how they had distorted it? They were reading something into the text. They were making the Bible say something it didn't say. Oh, beloved, beware of that. Beware of reading something into the Bible that the Bible doesn't say. They weren't taking in the whole counsel of God's Word because if they had just kept reading... In Leviticus 19, verse 33, notice here, when a stranger, a non-Jew, sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Or how about Exodus 30, uh, 23, 4? If you meet your enemy's ox, your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall Bring it back to him. Love your enemy. So then who is my neighbor? What is God's definition of my neighbor? If it isn't merely my people, the Jews, then who is it? Who is my neighbor? If you remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells us exactly who our neighbor is. Story of the Good Samaritan, you remember? Verse 29, this man comes to Jesus and he asks him, Who is my neighbor? Okay, Jesus, give me categories. Who's in, who's out? And Jesus tells this story of a Samaritan, this half-breed, really. This group of people hated and despised by the Jews who was a neighbor to this injured Jewish man, even when his countrymen were not. Making the point, everyone is a neighbor. Everyone is a neighbor. Every fellow human being, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of social class, is my neighbor. And that's who we are called to love. So the Pharisees had taken this call for universal love. And they had perverted and distorted it into a justification for hating their enemies. 
So they had wrongly defined neighbor, and they had wrongly understood enemy, and it was a perversion of God's law. But then, Jesus gives us now the ethics of his kingdom, and what, what it is that should characterize his kingdom citizens. Heading number two, notice second, the perfection of the law of love. The perfection of the law of love. Verse 44, Jesus says, but I say to you, so here's what you had wrongly heard, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So if we're called to love our neighbors and all people are my neighbors, then it follows that we are to love everyone even when they prove to be my enemy. So love your enemy. Friends, that's radical. That is otherworldly. Because that isn't the natural man's inclination. That isn't the natural man's tendency. No, our innate tendency, especially toward those who would harm us, who would hate us, who would wish evil upon us, our enemies, is to return evil for evil. It is to return hatred for hatred. It is to get even. It is to retaliate. One, one commentator, he writes this, quote, he says, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human, but to return good for evil is divine. Yes, it is. It is divine. And it is something that only can come from God. Loving your enemies. So last week, verses 38 to 42, Jesus says we shouldn't retaliate, shouldn't seek revenge when we're wronged, but here notice he takes it another step further. And he says, I don't just want you not to retaliate. I, just don't, I want you not just to not take revenge. I want you to actively love those who hate you. Who are against you. That's radical. Notice verse 44. The command there to love. It is a present active imperative. Meaning it, 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 is, it is to be a ongoing, habitual, continuous action. In other words, Jesus is saying, I, I want you to keep on loving them. I, I want you to love them with an unending unceasing love. I want you to love them with a love that doesn't grow cold. I want you to love them with a love that doesn't give up even in the face of their abuses. I want you to love them with a love without limits, with a love without qualifications and conditions that everyone, regardless of what they may say to me, what they may do to me, how they have treated me, what I get in return, you should love them. That's radical. <laughs> So then what does it mean to love them? What does it mean to love my enemies? Well, if you look over, notice with me, in Luke's parallel passage, Luke chapter 6. Look there with me for a moment. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, Love your enemies. 
do good to those who hate you. So, someone hates me, I, in return, do good to them. He goes on to say, bless those who curse you. They curse you, you bless them. And pray for those who abuse you. They abuse you, you pray for them. Or look down chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So what does it look like then to love my enemies? Well, Jesus says you do good to them. You bless them. You're generous. You expect nothing in return. You show mercy. You help them when they're in need. John Stott writes, loving your enemies will express itself in deeds, words, and prayers. Deeds, words, and prayers. What you do, what you say, and how you pray. So this isn't then just passively not retaliating. This is, no, actively finding ways to love them. For example, that coworker who just hates your guts. They, they, they constantly malign you. They constantly mistreat you. Maybe it's because you're one of those, you know, holier-than-thou Christians, right? Teasing you, mocking you because of your faith or because you've taken a righteous stand on a certain moral issue, because that's what the Bible says, and that's what it's going to mean if I'm going to follow Jesus. And then you find their wallet laying on the ground, and you return it to them. Or they just maligned you at work, and then on the way home from work, you see their car broken down on the side of the highway, and you stop, and you help them. You bless them. You speak well of them. You give. You serve. So can you just, for a moment, visualize in your mind with me who it would be? For some, it could be a family member who you're, you're estranged. They, they've hurt you severely in many ways. Maybe it's a former friend. Maybe it's a former colleague. They stabbed you in the back. They've wronged you. Or how about those people online and how you interact with them as well? Or, or someone who every time you think about them, every time you hear them speak, I mean, they just make your skin crawl. They just knot you up inside. People who don't like the way you live, they disagree with you, they hate you. How can you find practical ways to love them? How can you seek their good? In fact, Jesus gives us here one very practical way. Go again, Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 44. One practical way to love your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he gets very specific. All right, guys, let's take it out of the abstract. How can I tangibly, practically love my enemies? Here's how. You pray for them. You pray for them. 
Can you pray for your enemies? Can, can you pray for those who would seek to harm you? Now, I thought all week long about why Jesus would give this practical application. Why prayer? Why, why of all the things he could have said, pray for your enemies? And here's all I could come up with. Okay, see if it fits. The reason he tells us to love our enemies by praying for them is because prayer is actually one of the deepest forms of love. Prayer is actually one of the deepest forms of love because it, it means you really have to want good for them if you're going to pray for them. I mean, let's be honest. You can do nice things for your enemies, like I just mentioned a moment ago. You, you, can, you can do all of those things for your enemies without any sort of genuine love, genuine affection in your heart for them. I don't buy the idea that says you have to love your enemies, but you don't have to like them. No, Jesus is focused on the heart here. He's focused on the affections of your heart. This is a deep desire and love and affection for them. And yet, you can do all those things and not really love them, can't you? But you pray for your enemy. You, you come before the presence of God Almighty who sees your heart and you intercede for them. Asking God to bless them, asking God to save them, to convert them, to take away their cancer, to, to, to take some calamity out of your life. And I'll tell you what, if, 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 if you genuinely want what's best for them, that's the real deal. That's the real deal. You can't pray genuine prayers to God to bless them and do them good without loving your heart for them. You can't be praying and not loving, at least not for very long. And I think that you'll find that if you get on your knees and pray for them, even if the feelings of affection aren't there yet, you'll often find that the feelings will catch up. Because prayer is, I think, really one of the means by which you can begin to cultivate love. But friends, this isn't something you can do on your own. This is something divine. This is something God-given. We are totally incapable of producing this on our own. Because, after all, this is what Christ has done for you. After Judas had betrayed him, after the Jews had arrested him, after the soldiers had beaten him, after the Romans had crucified him, there he is, dying on the cross, and from the depths of his heart, what is he doing? He's praying, Father, forgive them. And then we remember that we too at one time were his enemies. Scott read it a moment ago, Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, we were his enemies, Christ died for us. It's no accident that Jesus here is commanding his disciples to love their enemies because then by the end of Matthew's gospel, he's dying for his. So this is a call then to follow him. This is a call then to be like him because that was me. 
And he loved me. He died for me. For those who were going the other way. For those who had rejected him. Who had spurned him. Who were indifferent toward him. That's who he died for. His enemies. Like me. Like you. And so when he says love your enemies, beloved. He isn't commanding you to do anything here but be like him. That's the perfection of the law of love. Now, before we move on to this last point here, the the reasons, the motivations for why we should love, allow me first very briefly just to address one question I think that some of you may be asking, especially in light of recent world events. Here's the question. How do I reconcile this command in the Bible to love my enemies where I see other places in the Bible Like, for example, Psalm 139, verse 21. Look here. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. How do you reconcile that? These are the kinds of places in the scriptures that we often refer to as imprecations or imprecatory parts of the Bible. Imprecatory psalms. Remember in our Psalms of Ascent study, we looked at an imprecatory psalm where the biblical author is calling down judgment on God's enemies. So how do I reconcile that? How do I, how do I account for that kind of teaching here when I see Jesus say, love our enemies? Well, first of all, here's the thing you have to keep in mind. Here's the thing you have to take into account. These, these kinds of things, those are judicial, not individual They're judicial, not individual, meaning this isn't a calling down of judgment or hatred on my personal enemies, those who've wronged me personally, but the enemies of God. Not individuals, but a collective group. Here, Psalm 139, verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, you? So these aren't prayers expressing personal vengeance, they're prayers motivated by a zeal for the glory and the honor and the reputation of God. But here's how I think you reconcile this, beloved. Here's how I think you hold these two things in tension. Where we see in the Bible loving our enemies and yet wanting God to punish his enemies. Here's how you reconcile them. You can't without Jesus. You cannot reconcile those without Jesus. Because all of that hatred for enemies gets expressed by God in one of two ways. Either at the final judgment, the end of the age, when Christ will destroy all his enemies. And friend, listen, that day is coming and all evildoers will be punished. All injustices will be made right It's either at the final judgment or the other place that wrath and that hatred gets expressed is in the cross where God loved his enemies so much he made them his friends. And so right now, at this time in history, it is in our job to display the judgment of God. And so right now, we're to be like Christ. Now that isn't to say 
that we shouldn't long for justice, we shouldn't pray for God to punish the wicked or, 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 or just war against many of the evil atrocities we're seeing. It's a good thing to want justice and righteousness, but right now our calling as followers of Jesus is to be just like our Lord on the cross, loving our enemies. So then what are the reasons he gives to love? Why should we do this? I've already given you one, be like Jesus. But what are the reasons Jesus gives? Well, notice the third heading, finally. The reasons to fulfill the law of love. Verses 45 to 48. And what I see here is that Jesus gives us two, maybe three, reasons that we should love our enemies. And they're meant to serve as motivations to you. So he's commanded us to love them, and now he's showing us why we should. Reason number one, notice there is in verse 45, so that, here's why, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. And then he bookends that, notice down in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the first reason. And then the second reason comes in verses 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? So let's look at these two reasons. Why should we love our enemies? Reason number one. The first reason you should love your enemies is because it makes us like God our Father. You should love your enemies because God loves His enemies. Because like father, like son. Verse 45. So that, here's why, you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, it's conditional statements like these in the Sermon on the Mount that make a lot of people very uncomfortable. Because it sounds as though... Jesus is saying that your position as a child of God, being a a son of your father, is conditional. It's contingent upon you loving your enemies. Well, that sounds like, like works. That doesn't sound like grace to me. So much so that some people have tried to do hermeneutical gymnastics to make this say, well, no, this is this is an ethic for the millennial kingdom age. No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. In other words, they would think, well, that's the kind of statement. You have to love your enemies before so you can be called a a child of God. So loving comes before sonship. But that isn't what he means. First of all, that would contradict everything the Scripture teaches. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Romans 11.6 but it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. You enter the kingdom only by grace. You can't earn this status as a child, it's grace. You must be born into it or adopted into it. You can't work your way into it. So then what does he mean? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, verse 45, he means loving our enemies shows that we have already become children of our Father. It's bearing witness to the fact that we are His children. 
Why? Because children resemble their father. They imitate their father. They take after their father. They look like their father. Even adopted children take on the mannerisms and the characteristics of their mom and dad. And the same is true with children of God. They resemble their father in heaven. It gives proof of your sonship. And the reason we know that's what he's saying is because not only did the Beatitudes show us we're already in the kingdom, but notice Jesus here is telling his disciples he's already your father. And like father, like son, like daughter. And he loves his enemies, seen clearly at the cross. And therefore, if, if you're going to reflect him, if you're going to let your light shine before men, then we will love our enemies as well. So then what's our father like? How, how does God love his enemies? Well, look at verse 45. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. How does our Father love His enemies? Here's how. He showers blessings they don't deserve. He is gracious to everyone. Notice, to the good and the evil. To the righteous and the unrighteous. To the believer and the unbeliever. Guess what? The sun rose on Mount Vernon today. I don't know if you can see it. Sun rose on Mount Vernon today. The sun rose over the Middle East today. Who deserved it? Technically speaking, no one. No one deserved it. This past week, rain fell on the crops of Farmers who love Jesus and those who despise his name. Who deserved it? None of them. And yet God our Father is gracious to all kinds of people who don't deserve it. His enemies. Can you not do the same? God is indiscriminate with his divine love. Now, let me be clear. We must be careful to distinguish between this kind of common love, common grace for all, sun rising, rain falling, and saving grace, saving love. He lavishes only on his elect, those who've come to faith in Jesus, repented and believed. And one of the things to keep in mind is that God will pour out his judgment at the end of history. That is coming. He won't allow the sun to perpetually shine on the wicked. But right now, all are receiving it. And Romans chapter 2 says, it is a kindness of God that is meant to lead you to repentance. If that's you today, if you're one of the unrighteous, you've never come to faith in Jesus, repent and believe in the gospel while you still have time. He is showering common grace upon you today. And therefore, his children will show grace and love to even their enemies as well. Those who don't deserve it because that at one time was us we were running our hellbound race and God so loved the world he gave 
His son. That's the first reason. We love our enemies because it makes us like our father. Here's the second reason we love our enemies. Because it is a supernatural love that distinguishes us from the world. It's a supernatural love distinguishing you from everyone else in the world. Look at verses 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more do, are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So notice Jesus is distinguishing here between human love and divine love. One is natural to everyone, and one is only supernaturally given from above. That's, what he, that's the distinction he's making. In fact, notice he asks these series of questions here in order to demonstrate this. Notice these examples of what we might call merely human love, which, by the way, merely human love, that is a common grace of God. That holds the world together in a lot of ways, all right? Yes, much common grace from mere human love, but it's totally insufficient to obey Christ's command. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? In other words, it's easy to love those who love you. It's easy to love those who like you, who, who are your people, right? My crew. That's, that's the way the world, my, my, my people, my crew, that, that governs gang warfare. I'm sure there were Nazis who were great fathers. I'm sure there's leaders of Hamas who love their children. That takes nothing. It takes no divine love to love like that. All human beings do that. In fact, verse 46, even the most low-life scum of the earth do that. Do not even the tax collectors? Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Answer, you're not doing anything more. They love only those who return that love, who reciprocate that love. Verse 47, do not even the Gentiles, the unbelievers, do the same. There's absolutely nothing supernatural about this. There's nothing divine about that kind of love. And that, friends, is the way the world operates. You don't need the Spirit of God to love like that. And Jesus says, if all you do is like people who like you and love people who love you and are nice to you, how are you different from anybody else in the world? So what's he calling for? He's calling for a supernatural kind of love that demonstrates we belong to our Father, that is distinct from the world. This is how you will show the world you are my children. This is how you will show the world you're citizens of my kingdom. This is how you will demonstrate to the world the transforming power and grace of the gospel. And beloved, in a culture where Persecution is on the rise, and our enemies are becoming more easily identifiable. 
I think we have a unique opportunity to demonstrate to a lost and dying world the unique love of God and the power of the cross. So, will we take seriously this command to love our neighbors? May it be that in our generation, as, as, as some manner of persecution or opposition is mounting against us, we see that we would hear our Father say to us, okay, church, now is your opportunity to show my kind of love. And notice in verse 46, it's that kind of love that God rewards. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If you love this way, you've got reward in heaven. Now, finally, what do we do with verse 48? Look there, and we'll close. Notice that Jesus here in verse 48, he's summarizing, concluding his thought here with that word, therefore. You see that? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What are we to do with that? That, that verse trouble you? What, what is this perfection here? Well, first... Again, this isn't a standard you have to meet before you become a child of God. He is already your heavenly Father. You belong to Him. Your heavenly Father is perfect. But second, don't let that throw you off. He isn't calling for sinless perfection here. No, we know that. We know that's not what He means because... His children, his kingdom citizens, are those who are poor in spirit and mourn over their sin. We know that because if you'll notice in chapter 6, verse 12, he's going to teach us to pray, Father, forgive us our debts. We know that because look over in chapter 7, verse 11, he says, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father who is in heaven. He's not calling for sinless perfection. Rather, this is a call to pursue, to strive for, not to earn, to strive for perfect love, like your Father. He is the one who has demonstrated perfect love, complete love, holy love, and love for your enemies shows the perfection of His love. So strive for that. Pursue that kind of perfect love, even though you will never reach it perfectly in this love, but by God's grace, you can walk in it today. You must strive for that. And the motivation for living out this radical life of love is because of who your Father is and because of what the Son has done. Romans 5.10 says this, if while we were enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. And the kind of love that Jesus is commanding here is a kind of love that cannot be explained in merely human terms. So how can you love your enemies this week? How can you show that you belong to your Heavenly Father? Father, we do thank You for your infinite love and grace that you've shown to us in Christ. Help us to live that out faithfully. Help us to 
pursue that kind of perfect love to display to the world the transforming power of your grace and the gospel to reflect our Father. We pray this in Christ, amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.